Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 20th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about whether the top-seeded Warriors and Hawks will live up to their regular season performances, or if they'll disappoint us all and be subjected to a ritualistic shaming exercise after early departures from the NBA playoffs. Shaming exercise, shaming (laughs) exercise, shaming exercise. (laughs) We'll then be joined by economist Andrew Zimbalist to talk about the rising opposition of Boston's bid to host the 2024 Summer Olympics. We'll discuss the New York Islanders' early success in the NHL playoffs in their last season in Nassau Coliseum. Hockey talk. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and host of the weekly hockey podcast Hockey Talk with Stefan Fatsis. Hello, Stefan. (laughs) Hey, Josh. Uh, That podcast has never actually gotten distribution. It's just you talking to yourself. At home. At home. Yeah. But... Actually, his his cat's name is Hockey. (laughs) (laughs) With us from New York, Islanders fan and human, Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Which, having returned from Nassau Coliseum, I was going to uh, just mention that they're not always the same thing. Yeah, we'll get get to that in segment numero trace. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we will discuss the widespread disgust over the Edmonton Oilers' victory in hockey's draft lottery. People hate Edmonton, and I will defend Edmonton against Edmonton's haters, the anti-Edmonton junta. Few are pro-Edmonton if you're anti-Edmonton. No matter what side you're on, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. If you sign up, you'll hear Edmonton talk some weeks, Medicine Hat, Saskatoon, maybe a little bit of uh, Halifax. Kamloops is bonus bonus coverage deep cut bonus deep bonus members only for Kamloops sign up at slate.com slash hang up plus you'll get a two week free trial two weeks of Canada chat for free one last announcement we are going to record a spring call-in show in the next few weeks if you haven't heard one of these before this is where we answer questions from you the listeners they can be sports conundrums hypotheticals inquiries anything Really, although it should be a question that won't be hopelessly dated. Questions in rhyme get preference. <laughs> um, not with at least one of the three hosts, but you can try that. We don't want questions that'll be dated by the time the show airs. Do not ask us who will win game two between the Spurs and Clippers. Don't ask that question for multiple reasons, actually. But the phone number for your question, 77-HANG-UP-10. That's 77-HANG-UP-10. Please call us. Okay, the opening weekend of the NBA playoffs went basically according to plan. 
the Wizards of Washington were the lone road team to take a 1-0 series lead. The Clippers beat the Spurs pretty easily on Sunday night to grab the early lead in that three versus six Western Conference series, a matchup of the NBA's second and third best teams by point differential. And yet, somehow, the Brooklyn Nets, who have been outscored by three points per game, not like by 0.3 points per game, by a whole three-point per game average, made the playoffs out of the East. There's no justice. No justice at all, I say. But let's back away slowly from Brooklyn to look at the top of the standings. Golden State Warriors and the Atlantic Hawks. <laughs> the Golden State Warriors and the Atlanta Hawks, the top seeds in the West and East, respectively. The Warriors finished at 67-15, and 15, only lost two games at home all year. One of the most impressive regular seasons in uh, NBA annals, I would say. Um, and they're the betting favorite to win the title. The Hawks, despite a 61 season, are big underdogs to Cleveland in the East. Seen by Vegas as less likely to win the title than the Warriors, Cavs, Spurs, or Clippers. Um, it's kind of a strange season, Mike, because the two best teams in um, the West and the East are not teams that really have a long history of success. The NBA playoffs are the most predictable of any of uh, the four major leagues. Star players seem to win. The same teams seem to be consistent from year to year. And yet this year, we've got these new teams um, that have been the best during the regular season. So what does that mean, you think, for the playoffs? Well, uh, the Hawks are definitely uh, a surprise improvement, although we've discussed them, and maybe they shouldn't have been such a surprise. But I do think there's a clustering in the West, and so if the Spurs had won their last game, they'd have gone, they'd have been a two seed. Now they're a six seed. So when we say, "Oh, all these new upstarts," they're still, you know, one game or two games from being the kind of slate of playoff teams that we've come to expect. Golden State, notwithstanding, I would also say that the Hawks, it's not exactly that they're not getting respect from Vegas. I think maybe that was a little true a couple weeks ago, but I do think uh, Cephalosha's broken leg, possibly at the hands of the NYPD, does hurt their chances maybe even more than, you know, his stat line would indicate. It's kind of a cohesive unit. They really need him. He's a, he's a you know fifth or sixth best player. Hollinger says they're a little more likely to win a championship, but still not even a 10% likelihood to win the championship. Hollinger, the ESPN stats guru, like the Spurs a little bit more. I don't know. They lost to the Clippers. I have a history of overreacting to the first game. <laughs> they could still come back. The Clippers look great, but the Spurs could still come back. We don't want to get boxed in to a, Veteran guile. To a, to a prediction Who here. Who will win game two? The Warriors two. are, are a it's fascinating a team, <laughs> Stefan, because um, as discussed, this is not a franchise... That's one of the historical heavyweights in the league. And it, it's a team with a star player, Stephen Curry, who's going to either win the MVP or finish second to James Harden. But one that um, in the recent past was known as kind of a good offensive team, bad defense. This year, they've turned it around defensively, one of the top, if not the top defensive teams in the league. Um, and the way that happens, I think, is kind of opaque to fans like us who are not scouts, executives, uh, general managers. Um, so I think people might just erroneously see this team because they still have the great shooting of Curry Thompson as just a an offensive juggernaut that, that can't stop teams. And they'll kind of have to prove their worth in the postseason, um, you know, just by winning series, beating the Spurs. How one proves their worth. Yeah. Just by winning, right. Um, and I think the opaqueness is is an interesting point because we don't know. And we watch games as just inhalers of what's in front of us. And, you know, we have far more tools now to assess these things. But sometimes our, our images of who a player is, what a team is, are ingrained. And when I think of the Golden State Warriors, I mean, I think of a, of, you know, a team that's in a large market. Market size does matter in the NBA, though you wouldn't know it from looking at this year's standings, that has never sort of lived up to that, um, at least in the last 20 years when the traditional powers in the NBA have been pretty good, with the exception of New York. So th- to They're me, not a traditional power. Well, they won <laughs> They're twice. They're traditionally been they in the twice. NBA. <laughs> they won twice. You know, twice is good. <laughs> twice is more than zero. Yes, that's right. Three percent um, of their seasons end in victory. Yes. So is Golden State just not a has just not been a basketball market? I mean, to me that this is always sort of true. Why has San Francisco not been a you know a, a go to team? Why have other teams in the NBA 
other franchise in the, in the NBA succeeded more readily than Golden State has. And why has this turnaround occurred now? It's partly the players, it's partly the management, and it's partly the flattening of the ability of front offices to build better teams. Well, they do have a rich owner now, right? right. Lacobe, um, and I think Mark Cuban was the proof of concept there, taking a historically moribund franchise, the Mavericks, who... If you are a younger person, you would now not think of as being historically moribund. They make the playoffs every year and they're mm-hmm. always good and Cuban spending a huge amount of money. And it seems like there is maybe more fluidity in that way in the NBA than there had been in decades past, where it's still more consistent from year to year with the top franchises. But you have the ability to move into that upper echelon either by having a deep-pocketed owner or by making the right draft picks, like see the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I think trends help, too. I mean, the trend to hire smart, analytically-minded front office staff will enable these kinds of changes, enable the Warriors to create better defensive uh, rhythm and coherence. Well, I would say more than just deep-pocketed owner, they're forward thinking they're tech guys they're in silicon valley and i think the fire i think kerr's just the best coach going and i think jackson who they got rid of was a good coach and therefore was probably a tough decision on paper to get rid of a guy who's a good coach but they knew that he wasn't coaching in the way that they wanted him to be coaching and i think that things like you know you know why we know that steve kerr is the best coach in the nba because he chose to go to the warriors rather than the, the knicks. knicks yeah uh <laughs> And I think also that it shows up their forward thinkingness shows up in their defense because everyone knows, well, not that he was drafted, but look, uh, Curry makes a lot of shots. He's an offensive juggernaut. What do you do? He's become a great defensive player. And I think a lot of that is training, work, but also scheme. And so I give them a lot of credit for not just having natural talent, but doing a lot with their talent. There are a lot of teams. Look at the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think the idea of not getting in the way of natural talent and letting your guys go one-on-one is totally dead in the NBA. And look at the Hawks. I mean, the Hawks don't have the 10th best natural talent, but they're a really cohesive team. It's more important than it's ever been. Yeah, so the Hawks had a very good draw in the playoffs, getting the uh, terrible Nets in the first round, and then the Wizards and Raptors um in round two, the winner of that They'll only series. get one is also the great thing about that. That is great. And yeah. both of those teams, no matter which they play, they were both under 500 after the All-Star break. So it seems like they will have a, a very clear path to the Eastern Finals, whereas the Cavs will have to play the Bulls, it seems like, with Derrick Rose now back at least for like a game. Uh, hopefully he'll be able to retain his health at least into the semifinals. Um, and so... It will be an opportunity for the Hawks to show the world that uh, they can play this basketball. Why are you laughing at me? Show the world. They won't shock the world. They're just going to show the world. Yeah. I find Kyle Korver to be such a fascinating player because the Hawks have no real stars. They had four all-stars, but nobody who's going to be like, you know, in a sneaker campaign or something. And yet Korver is somebody who is just as fascinating to watch on a possession-by-possession basis as any player in the NBA, just because he shoots over 50% from threes, the best three-point shooter, um, either him or Curry, probably in NBA history. And so you know that if he catches the ball and has any kind of sliver of opening um, beyond the three-point line, he's going to score. So that just dra- the drama of following him around the court, watching him run off all the screens is as entertaining to me as, you know, watching, you know, LeBron go one-on-one or something like that. It's just really fun to see. And they have a great coach, Mike Budenholzer, formerly of the Spurs, who contrives to get him open in all these ways. And they use their their whole team to try to scheme to get open shots. That We are me, but a Kyle Korver delivery system. <laughs> that to me is just so fun to watch. It's like the team kind of acting in the service of a single player and in this really awesome way. Oh, I agree. And I think that uh, it's, you know, Phew, Kyle... I thought I was talking for there for yeah. a really long time with nobody <laughs> validating it. So I'm glad you agree. I agree. Kyle Korver hiding in plain sight. I bet there are a bunch of guys. I bet there's going to be a Kyle Korver revolution and all the sharpshooters are now going to be. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can do it with the Hawks because there are guys who don't naturally think, well, I got to get my uh, 18 shots and I got to score my 25 points a game. But the defense is also uh, extremely impressive. They're they're a fascinating team. But Cephalosha lists less fascinating. And the Hawks, pretty balanced, right? Did we talk about balance on the Hawks? Every player in the starting lineup, top 20 in estimated wins added 
which is fairly impressive given that there are five people on a basketball court at once and there are <laughs> mm-hmm. 30 something teams in the NBA. 30? 30? Mm-hmm. 30. 30. The That's NBA. the something. Yes. Something. Yes. The something is zero. Yes. That counts. Something is zero. The, uh, I believe that was one of the greatest human achievements. The, uh, knowledge, <laughs> the discovery the of zero. 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 Now, Stefan, you know, in our history, I can't say that there is a ratio of Stefan correcting Mike to Mike correcting Stefan because Mike has never corrected Stefan, but I thought I had one when you said uh, opaqueness. I'm like, ah, it's opacity. But I looked it up. Opaqueness yeah, is acceptable. Is fine. As you knew, right? I did. But you ready? Philadelphia slash Golden State Warriors have won more titles than, than the New, New York, York Knicks. Knicks. Yes, and they've both been in the league since 46. Of course, two of the Warriors titles were in Philadelphia. Still no corrections. I have no correct. I have no. <laughs> I have zero for that ratio still. Hang up and listen is part of the Panoply Network. Here is a word from one of our sister podcasts. I'm Baratunde Thurston. I'm Raquel Cepeda. I'm Janner Colby. On our next episode of our national conversation about conversations about race, we talk about the brutal police killing of Walter Scott in South Carolina and ask, will something really change? Do black lives actually matter? We address Kendrick Lamar's announcement about his wife-to-be and the dark-skinned activist who went in on him because she's not dark at all. Colorism's still alive. And finally, we deal with Mindy Kaling's brother, Vijay Chokalingam, who pretended to be black in order to get into medical school 17 years ago to prove that affirmative action doesn't work and is wrong. Is he right? We'll talk about that as well. Check out our national conversation about conversations about race on Panoply. Back in January, the United States Olympic Committee selected Boston over Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. as the U.S. representative in bidding for the 2024 Summer Olympics. The reaction to this supposed victory in Boston has been a lot closer to agony than ecstasy. A recent poll from NPR affiliate WBUR shows the nays outnumbering the yays 50% to 40%. Back in January, economist Andrew Zimbalist wrote an op-ed column for the Wall Street Journal titled Boston Would Be Lucky to Lose the Olympics Competition. He's also the author of the book Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics in the World Cup. Over the next few minutes, using our finely honed interviewing skills, we hope to pin Mr. Zimbalist down and determine once and for all whether he thinks it would be good or bad yeah. for Boston to host the 2024 20, Olympics. Stop ducking the issue. <laughs> I have no idea. Wishy-washy, Andy Zimbalist, <laughs> professor. You know how these professors are. Hi, Andy. <laughs> Hi, Stefan. All right. So in a, in a 2012 piece in The Atlantic, Andy, you wrote that there are three reasons why hosting the Olympics is a loser's game. Uh, bidding process is hijacked by private interests. It creates massive overbuilding, and there's little evidence that it meaningfully increases tourism. So are all three of these in evidence in the Boston bid? Yes, I think so. Uh, Starting with with the bidding, one of the things that's interesting to me about the Boston process is that Boston has never endorsed the bid. The city council never voted on it, and the state legislature never voted on it. Uh, Rather, what happened is a, a group of corporate executives got together and decided that they would like to do this. And they appropriated the name of Boston and applied to the USOC in the name of Boston. But as we speak, there still has been no political vetting of it or political endorsement of the project. Uh, Ultimately, what will happen is that um, as, as of September of this year, Boston will be in a competition with Paris and Italy and Hamburg and perhaps Istanbul and Budapest and perhaps Doha and Baku and one or two other places uh, for a period of two years. And then the IOC will anoint a winner amongst that group of of competing cities. That process uh, that goes on for roughly two years is a very competitive one. And uh, the IOC will will pick the the bidder that provides the, the most elaborate and uh, the most fancy and expensive venues and and transportation and communications plan amongst the group. Uh, So inevitably what you have is a single seller, a monopolist, which is the IOC, taking bids from around the world, and you you tend to get in that process a lot of overbidding and a lot of extravagance. So I think absolutely the, the bidding issue applies to 
to Boston. In terms of the over uh, the overbuilding, you know, there are 32 venues that you have to construct to host to host the Olympics these days. Uh, Boston is hoping, I think hoping against hope, that they'll be able to get away with uh, Spartan facilities. So that Boston, for instance, at this point in time, is is proposing that they build an Olympic stadium in, in South Boston uh, that will have only 60,000 capacity seats and won't have any premium seating, won't have luxury boxes or club seats, won't have catering facilities. Uh, but this particular Spartan Stadium will, will cost, they're estimating, over $500 million to build. When the Olympics are over, in order to avoid a white elephant phenomenon, they are planning to take down, to raise the stadium. Um, and they say that they're going to use a modular, a modular uh, arch- architecture construction plan for the stadium so that they'll take it, a, take it down piece by piece, and then they will donate the various pieces to various universities in the greater Boston area. Um, now, I, I think that what's going to happen over the two the two year period of competition amongst these cities in the world is that if Boston is going to have a viable bid, they're going to have to up the ante. They're not going to be able to stay at at sixty thousand seats. Uh, they're not going to be able to stay with a stadium that doesn't have luxury uh, suites. We already know, for instance, that the Hamburg plan has eighty thousand capacity. We already know that the Paris plan, where they're going to use the Stade de France, has eighty thousand seats. Um, so if Boston wants to win, they're going to have to they're going to have to provide a more elaborate bid, and we will at the end of the day get get overbuilding. In terms of tourism, the evidence is not favorable. Uh, Lon- London had a reduction in tourism during 2012 of six percent relative to uh, to 2011. Uh, Beijing had a reduction of 20 percent in the number of tourist arrivals. A few cities in the past have had small, small, short-term increments in tourism, and other cities have had uh, short-term declines in tourism. Uh, what tends to happen is that normal tourists stay away. They, they don't want to deal with the congestion. They don't want to deal with the high prices. They don't want to deal with the possibility of security in, in incidents. And the people who do come to the Olympics go home and they talk about the Olympic events. They don't talk about the, the city's uh, tourist attractions. Andy, let's talk about the, the initial stage here. I mean, th- this is a proposal. And what tends to happen with proposals like these is that the organizers, mostly private business, with some layering of public official support, though no genuine public support, um, tend to say, hey, we're going to do the things that the IOC wants. And the IOC is sort of done what the sportocrats at the IOC do, which is saying we don't want to encourage extravagance and we're looking forward to more economy in the construction of these bids. But this is all like a fictional document at this point. And the, the inevitably, you know, they point to low operating costs, but those don't include things like infrastructure development. Why do they get away with this at this stage? And aren't other cities facing the same sort of ramping up process that is endemic to these bids? Well, I think the reason why they get away with it is because the the local political process gets hijacked by the the, the corporate interests that you were talking about. Is this is a very profitable activity for construction companies? Uh, they you basically have a, a lot of public money, billions of dollars of public money that gets spent building facilities. Uh, so it, it greatly increases the the demand for the services of the construction industry. It, it, they get to charge higher prices and they have more business. And the labor unions, the construction trades, also benefit from this. Uh, and they turn out to be very powerful actors in a local uh, urban political economy. Um, so the IOC gets away with it because they're the IOC. That this is the International Olympics that we've had in our in our world every four years going back to 1896 in, in the modern Olympics. And uh, there's a mythology about the Olympics as, as being something that's, that's pure and holy and, and promotes world peace and, and, and world communication. Yeah, I just can't believe the methodology, right? As you, as you uh, detailed in a series of Boston Globes, uh, Globe op-eds, 
they only count as their operating expenses the 17 days that the games are held. So right. none of the billions of dollars of construction are counted against the revenue. How does – and sometimes you have actual – yeah, sometimes you have fly-by-night firms to give you the estimate of how much the games will generate. But sometimes you have actual universities like UMass signed on to report saying it's going to be you know this profitable. How can real economists or real academics get away with that? Well, they seem, the IOC has uh, has structured the bidding process in a very rigid way, and what they say is that each of the games has to be managed by something called the OCOG or the Local Organizing Committee of the Games, and the OCOG budget refers to the since it's the operating committee, um, they refers to the operating budget. That's that's as you say the expenditures during the 17 days of the games, and they, I, the IOC also stipulates that any venue construction, uh, which obviously will happen before the games, is a separate budget, and then infrastructure is still yet another budget. And I guess the the rationale that they give for that is that the venues have long-term use; that even though they're they're being built. Um, facially, they're being built for the games, that they're venues that will be used forevermore, and the infrastructure, the roads, and the communications infrastructure, and the bridges, and the parking lots, all of that will be used forevermore, so that the only thing that's appropriately directly attributed to the Olympics is what happens during those 17 days. We know, of course, that the, the venues and the infrastructure uh, more often than not are not used in the long run, or they're not used productively for a city's development in the long run, and they should indeed be at least partially counted as part of the Olympic costs. So the Olympics through 2020 have been awarded. There's Rio in 2016 and Tokyo in 2020 for the Summer Games, Pyeongchang, South Korea in 2018 for the Winter Olympics. The 2022 Winter Games had both Oslo and Stockholm withdraw their bids under a lot of public pressure. There was no political will. There was no public will, it seemed, to have the games in those countries. And the only candidate cities remaining are in Kazakhstan and then uh, Beijing, China. So my question is, it it seems like Paris is bidding for 2024. The summer games maybe still have some more allure than the winter games do to like a Western democratic country. But is there going to be a point at which the IOC will have to accede to wishes of non- dictatorial countries and allow them to, you know, have the Olympics on more of a, you know, human scale or uh, a less expensive scale if they want to have the Olympics in like a non-Kazakhstan nation? First of all, let me just add to your list of of, um, potential hosts that dropped out of the bidding for 2022, Munich, Krakow, and San San Moritz Davos. They all had referendums uh, that voted that they did not want to have anything to do with uh, hosting the, the 2022 games. So I think you're asking a very good question, and, and it's clearly something that the new IOC president, Thomas Bach, is concerned about. I think that he saw the train wreck coming. In, in fact, the number of applicant cities to host both the Winter and the Summer Olympics has been dropping since the late 1990s. Now we're, now they're they're down all the way to two bidders from authoritarian countries, um, Kazakhstan and China, uh, that have immense, immense ecological issues and water issues with, with their potential hosting. Uh, and it's got to be very embarrassing to the IOC that, that has since the 1990s said that it's all about sustainability. Very embarrassing to them to have only these two choices. Interestingly enough, two weeks ago, the, the IOC sent, sent their exploratory committee to, to Beijing to make sure everything was in proper order for, for their bid. And they came away extolling Beijing for the preparations in their, in their bid for, for hosting the games. But it turns out we learned, we learned from an independent source that Beijing is refusing to release the, the, the budget for the high-speed rail they're going to build from Beijing to, to Outer Mongolia, uh, which, which, excuse me, Inter, Inner Mongolia, which... Inner is, Mongolia. Well, that's, oh, come on, be, just Inter Mongolia. That'll be under Andy, budget. Seriously. <laughs> which is uh, 120 miles north of Beijing. They're going to be two different uh, clusters of, of mountains where they're going to have Olympic events, uh, and it's going to cost them billions and billions of dollars to build this light rail, but they're unwilling to, A, include that in the Olympic budget, 
because they say they were going to build the rail anyway, which is nonsense. And they're even unwilling to release the number that is it's the, the cost number, even if they're not going to include it in the Olympics, because they say it's nobody's business. So IOC comes out of this investigation of China and they say, this is terrific what China is doing. This is right in line with the frugality that we've been looking for. And the only way they're achieving frugality is by not releasing the, the data on, on one of the most expensive items uh, for the Olympics. So, look, there's, there's a real issue here. How, how can a country that's, that's open, how can a country that's democratic ultimately justify and get people to go along in these days of fiscal austerity? How can they get people to vote to say, yeah, we want to do this? And I think at this point, it's unknowable. What Thomas Bach is, is trying to do is to put a PR spin on the whole thing by saying, oh, yes, we recognize the problems. Oh, yes, we're going to be more frugal. Yes, we're going to be more Spartan. Yes, we're going to be more committed to sustainability. And I think that, you know, he's it, it, on, on a PR level, he's making a wonderful effort. He's making the effort that needs to be made, uh, at least for the time being, as you point out, with, with bids coming from Paris and Hamburg and, and Rome. He does have, uh, at this stage, a lot of bidders. Once again, instead of having only two for the Winter Olympics, he's got at least five now lined up for the summer 2024 games. Right, and he'll always have, but he'll always have a Russia with Sochi or a Beijing that's willing to do the sort of financial shenanigan approach toward these games and consequences be damned. In Boston, let's get back to Boston for a minute. I mean, there is public opposition here and there is a tremendous amount of reporting going into exposing the early bid organization as a collection of former politicians, consultants, construction firms operating in a grand effort, the, the Boston Globe said, was conceived in secrecy and dedicated to the proposition that disclosure is a courtesy occasionally granted rather than something the public has a right to expect on a timely basis. Isn't there a call for a referendum up there that will ultimately decide whether this proceeds? And is public opposition serious enough that it could send some message? Yeah, absolutely. So what, what happened after the the USOC anointed Boston as the U.S. representative back in January. 52% of people polled said that they were happy about the, the potential hosting. Uh, one month later, 44% said they were happy. And last month, 36% said they were happy that Boston might host the Olympics. So they, in, in the context of plummeting support, the Boston 2024 group said uh, that they would support a referendum. Uh, I think they needed to do this because they were being criticized for being undemocratic, number one. And number two, they realized that if they have an election, uh, they they can flood the airwaves with, with advertisements and publicity in favor of the Olympics. And they have a reasonable chance at, at the end of the day of getting getting 50% support. Uh, so we are going to have, it does look now like we're going to have a referendum in November of of 2016. Uh, that's, you know, it's a year and a half away. Uh, so there's going to be a year and a half of expenditures and time and effort, uh, put into continuing to develop our bid before, before there's a final vote on this matter. Uh, Andrew, give me your vision of what a cost effective Olympics would look like. Well, I think if you look at what happened in Los Angeles in 1984, it's, it's a cost effective Olympics. And if, and if the USOC had picked Los Angeles as our, representative for the 2024 would have been cost effective. And the reason in both cases is because Los Angeles hosted the Olympic Games in 1932 and they had most of the venues still available. The only the only construction that had, there were just one or two venues that were, were built for the 1984 Olympics and they were minor venues and Peter Uberoth, who ran those games, got uh, corporate support for them. So they didn't have to put any money into venue construction. Uh, that would have been true again for 2024 if if Los Angeles were picked. So, but the, the big this, difference is though that they were there was no bidders because 76 was a disaster, and the IOC financially backed that Olympics, which will never happen again if you have other countries. You're who, exactly uh, right. To That's put, right. Foot the bill. There was a very special circumstance back then, but it could have applied more or less to the 2024 because Los Angeles has the venues in place and they have a modern modern uh, communications uh, infrastructure. Uh, and so there would have been very little that they had to put into uh, to hosting the games. That's 
that's a vision for a uh, you know potentially economically reasonable games. The other thing that needs to happen, we learned from what happened in Barcelona in 1992, is a Barcelona began planning replanning its city after after Franco died in 1975, and the plan that they had developed in the late 1970s was one that opened the city back up to the sea because there had been a manufacturing and warehousing district that sprung up between the center of the city and the Mediterranean Sea, and they wanted to move that district so the city would be open to the sea again. That was the fundamental element in their plan. That existed, it pre-existed the, any notion of, of bidding for the Olympic Games. When they decided to bid for the Olympic Games, they did, did it in a way that was synergistic with their pre-existing vision and their pre-existing plan. That has never happened again. It never happened before. What typically happens is that there is no vision, there is no plan, but then the IOC comes along and says, here are our requirements, and this, the city has to contort itself to meet the IOC demands. A successful Olympic Games is one where there's a pre-existing plan, and the Olympics can be folded into that plan. And number two, where the amount of construction that has to go on is minimal. All right, Andy. Well, you know, we'll have to have you on again to get get the straight answers. Very political here. Don't want to be pinned down at either way. But yeah, I'm sorry for equivocating. I, I respect oh, such that. Such a diplomat. What are you looking for a job with the IOC? <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Appreciate okay, it. Okay. Sure. My pleasure. Bye bye. Andrew Zimbalist is the author of the book Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. On Sunday afternoon in Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, the New York Islanders beat the Washington Capitals 2-1 to in Game 3 of their first-round Eastern Conference playoff series. Mike Pesca's already giggling. Veterans uh, Memorial. They're trying so hard. Nassau Veterans <laughs> Memorial Coliseum. I wanted and, it's to, said, and it's said in the, uh, the font that reflects that voice, yes. I wanted to give it some gravitas. Islanders captain John Tavares scored the game winner just 15 seconds into overtime. This was the Islanders' first playoff overtime win since 1993, which was also the last season in which the team won a playoff series. Given that the team hasn't won in the playoffs since the Hartford Whalers still existed, you could forgive fans like Mike Pesca for their apathy, but the crowd on Sunday was raucous, celebrating the Islanders' unusual success, perhaps trying to drown out their sorrows over the team's imminent departure from Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum to Brooklyn's Barclays Center. Reviews of the Coliseum on Yelp include, the place is a dump, there is not much to say except this place is ancient and a dump, and more generously, sure, it's a dump, but it's our dump. The floor is now yours, Mike Pesca. It was, Should... bu- it was built on an Air Force base. That's the veterans part. <laughs> and respectful. every single one of those planes crashed immediately upon takeoff. Um, you can, okay, dump, you have... can dump on the floor if you want, Mike. You can do whatever you want with the floor on the floor to the floor. So I've been getting into, I guess it was the Islanders' success that sparked a little bit more of an interest in hockey. And I do have an interest in hockey. I think it's just there are so many things that argue for the greatness of hockey. Among them... The concept of the power play, which doesn't exist in too many other sports, I guess team handball has it, but it's such a regular feature of hockey. And for two minutes... What's team handball? uh, I don't know. For two minutes, there's this uh, expectation that the offense will succeed, but if and and there's so much uh, tension and there's so much excitement, but then if it doesn't, the defense gets a boost. So it's like an automatic injection of fervor at random points in the game and in response to a bad thing, which is a foul. I mean, think about what a penalty does in football. It's like a bummer and you get a yard or you don't get a yard or a penalty in basketball. It stops the game and then the most boring actual physical action results, which is a free throw or taking it out of bounds. A penalty in hockey is a joyous thing. It's the most amazing thing. there is. A penalty in soccer often results in a, in a uh, scoring opportunity that's hundreds of times greater than any regular scoring opportunity. So I want to give hockey credit for the way it does its penalties. It's like, like, a, it's like if every time DeAndre Jordan was fouled intentionally, there was like a guy who came in and dunked off a trampoline. <laughs> yes. That, on, DeAndre would say, hey, can we uh, trade 
places, by the way. <laughs> I think I might be better at that. You might be better at this. Anyway, so the uh, the Islanders, so what I'm saying is I've gotten into hockey. I've been appreciating hockey a little more. And one of the things I've been getting into hockey stats, advanced hockey stats, which I knew existed, but there's this thing called the Fenwick score and the Corsi score. And what it is, it just totally tallies every shot. Hockey defines a shot on goal as a shot on goal. Without the goalie, it would have gone in. But these also add the shots that are a little bit off goal. And one of them, the Corsi score, also adds the shots that, you know, a defender blocks. And it's a good proxy for possession, and possession is very important. Plus, it's a little better than shots on goal because something that misses the corner of the net by half an inch could be, is, you know, in some ways an immeasurably better chance than something that just trickles to the goalie. So looking at this, the Islanders had one of the best Fenwick scores throughout the season. Then they had an injury concussion to one of their key players, and they've tanked. And weirdly, the Rangers, people who like, uh, you know, they, they have the most points and people who are the hockey cognoscenti are looking at if the Rangers fail as a referendum on the Fenwick score. So it's a little bit like the days of baseball and Billy Bean and on-base percentage. So I've gotten really interested in that. That aside, just the emotion of the game really was the most exciting playoff game I've ever seen. Um, I've seen not too many Islander playoff games, right? But as an NPR sports reporter, I've been big games in Chicago and big games in Boston, big games in Philadelphia. And because of the nature of the arena, it's just so damn loud in there. And that's good. There are terrible things about Nassau Coliseum. The bathrooms are atrocious. They built this 16,000-seat arena, figuring at most 9,000 people would show up, and maybe 4,000 of them would be men, apparently. I don't know. Um, and the uh, And the other thing is that a great little aspect of it. The benches are so small that the backup goalie has to sit alone like in a dunce cap and there's a security guard, like an overweight old security guard who is asked to defend this poor guy. That I love. And then we'll get to Sparky the Dragon and some other things that happened uh, during the game. But I really was taken by how uh, emotionally fervid all those Islander fans were. But they were mean to the Capitals fans a little bit. The, the Islanders were awarded as a franchise in, like, in 1972 yep. largely because the World Hockey Association was trying to get a team there and the NHL sort of very quickly moved to award a franchise to the Islanders to, to award a franchise to the Nassau Coliseum. How much did you go there as a child, Mike? Were you post dynasty? Cause the dynasty for the New York Islanders was 1979 to 1983, four Stanley cups in a row. I think they reached the, did they reach the Stanley cup final in 84? Yeah, they lost the, to Edmonton and then Edmonton took over. And, and then Edmonton took, row, took yeah. over the dynasty. I mean, how engaged were you with, with that team? How oh, were you too young? No, extremely. I mean, being very young meant that my sister and I could go in on parents' laps and many weekend games were spent. My dad had hockey tickets. They were Ranger fans and quickly became Islander fans. And without even knowing it, it was just so absorbed in your experience as a youth such that I could name the numbers of everyone on like the 82 and 83 True. team without even thinking about it. And we went to a lot of games. So you're, But your nostalgia meter did not sort of go off on when you went to this game on Sunday. Probably no, could, and that's could what be the last game that you went to. Um, our friend Joe Poznanski wrote a column on uh, NBCSports.com where he went to a Islander game with our friend John Hawk, the filmmaker. And John was a fervid Islanders fan. Um, I, you know, I was a Rangers fan growing up on the other side in Westchester County. So when I met John in college, you know, he was all about the Islanders. And he, you know, he went back with Joe, and it's just this incredible outpouring of nostalgia. The place where they would scalp tickets, the place where they would sit because they would get these fake tickets from a guy in the parking lot named Howie, and they'd slip him ten bucks, and he, the, Howie, would tell him which usher to give the ticket to, and they would be tickets from like the circus, so there were no seats attached, and they would wander around the arena during the game, sort of catching glimpses or sitting on stairs wherever they were allowed. Allowed to, to sneak in. And John just feels this real strong attachment to this dump. And I felt the same way about the old, old Yankee Stadium when I started watching games in. It's our dump. You don't seem to feel that way, Mike. No, well, I'm... Uh, okay, so... As I've said sometimes on the show, I think I've perfected sports fandom, which is not getting too down, but and just enjoying the good things. So I'm really enjoying it. I will say that compared to, you know, my friends who've not released their season tickets for 20 years, obviously they're feeling this a lot more. And this to them is some sort of psychic or um, spiritual delivery. Yeah. Hot, hot calls it hot calls it a dream as opposed to a memory. It was so embedded in his childhood and his psyche. But the other thing I wanted to say. Even though, you know, I'm talking to, I'm interviewing for a thing I think I'll do on the gist, uh, f 
you know, bunch of people in the parking lot. And they talk about how much they love it. Look, for 20 years when the team was bad, no one showed up. And a couple years ago, you could get a Groupon. I think it was 84 people could show up for 11 bucks, and they all got a hot dog. All right. So for this whole thing about like, oh, my God, do the Islander fans love the Islanders? Not when they're bad. And that you can't expect anything, but let's not overdo it. And I think every team in a cold-weather city that has had some history, weirdly not the Minnesota North Stars, but every other team loves their team. And hockey fans are more crazy about hockey. And I will say this, that of all the jerseys in the arena, I've never seen a greater percentage of jerseys of guys who've been retired for 20 years than at an Islanders game. And that was definitely true a couple of years ago. Now a lot of Tavares jerseys are on display. Dennis Podman or Brian Trottier? Uh, Trottier is number one and then a lot of pot fan. But, you know, of course, if you have the old school jersey, you want to show how, you know, you're deep, the deep cuts and you do a little Lauren Henning action. <laughs> All right. So, so this doesn't descend into like uh, <laughs> into Islanders, Island, talk, Islanders cat talk. Islanders cat talk. Yeah. I think there is something generalizable here where a shitty venue is a bonding experience for fans. And I think it also I don't know if this is true or just like self-perception it means that the fans who do attend are more invested in the actual sport than the kind of atmosphere around the game, which you see so much, you know, understandably being sold in, you know, a lot of baseball stadiums now where, you know, the the, 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 sli- the slide and the outfield is as much of an attraction, if not more, than the game on the field. Like, I'm not a, a Washington Nationals fan, but I felt some affection for RFK Stadium, and I was sad to see the team move into what I view as a pretty generic, modern, retro stadium. It does, R- does have a Shake Shack, though. <laughs> it does. Because yeah. RFK, was, was, RFK was crap, but it was, you know, the, your focus was on on the game on the field. And it was just, like, weird in a way that crappy stadiums are. It wasn't like... But I think a crappy yeah. stadium has to have a firm bond with a franchise. And I don't think RFK really did have a firm bond with this incarnation Well, I didn't have a firm bond with the franchise, franchise. either. So it was, right. It was perfect for me. But in the case of something like the Islanders, that's the connection. And it's about history and about memory and about nostalgia. And I think that's fine. And the fact that it's also dovetailed with the Islanders getting good again, meaning the the closing and the the imminent implosion of the Nassau Coliseum has dovetailed with the Islanders getting good again. I think it allows some degree of sort of enhanced nostalgia because it feels okay now. Everyone's at peace with it because while they're selling out the building and they made the playoffs and they're going to move 20 miles into Brooklyn where who knows whether those same fans will come or whether new fans will be created. Uh, I also have to say that Islander fans uh, mostly are Mets fans and Jets fans. That's the Long Island trio. That's what I was raised in. Mm-hmm. They've been through it with Shea, and in two different ways, the Jets were ripped from them and moved into another team's stadium, so that stunk. But the Mets move, which I think is echoed in a lot of places, like Cleveland, I was at the old Municipal Stadium, and their new facility is a lot better, and Jacobs Field. When you have a nice new facility, and the only thing that recommended the old facility was that that's where the old team played, as soon as the new team plays in new place and it's a better place to go and there was winning in the new place then the old place was just you know your old your old apartment or your old house that you did live there but you can't argue that it was a sure nice it's house. a part of history it's crosley field it's you know it's whatever other stadiums that have been torn down to make way for something more modern and more well, reasonable well folks can let us know um either email us or on facebook if i'm if i'm forgetting one but is this the last arena or stadium in one of the major sports that you could typify is just like a straight up dump or like a a place that's both old and lacking in charm because sorry old and lacking in charm for people who aren't Mike uh, or John Hawk because just over the last few decades anything that you could put in that that category has been replaced and now you have like you know places like, I don't know, Skydome and Toronto or, you know, FedEx Field here in the D.C. area that are like new stadiums that are already seen as outdated and are going to be replaced most likely. So I can't I can't think of another example. Like this is the last Nassau Coliseum. It's the the last arena of its of its ilk. Well, D.C. United in Major League Soccer does still play in <laughs> RFK, but they're getting a new stadium, too. That's Major League Soccer, Stefan. I understand. But even those stadiums from the 70s attract now a sort of sense of, of aura, of, of mythology and nostalgia. I was talking to a friend over the weekend whose one of his great memories of childhood was going to Yankee Stadium 
in the 1980s. And the new Yankee Stadium, renovated and reopened in 1976, was kind of a dump. I mean, it was kind of cookie cutter. It was pretty antiseptic, and yet people do attach their own memories, and they filter them through whatever building they have these memories in. I don't think the uh, Golden State Warriors play. I think they play in an old dump, too. Oh, yeah, they, they call do. it the and Oracle the, Arena, and the but it's kind of an, and the it's kind of an old too. dump. And, and the, the A's, A's, too. But there's the obviously um, huge <laughs> movements to, to move both those teams. I think the Warriors' right. new stadium is coming very soon in San Francisco, and the A's have been trying to move desperately to San Jose. Yeah. But your, your, uh, your supposition exists but for what is known as the Oakland exception. <laughs> All right, now it is time for After Balls, and we just talked about Edmonton. This is going to be a a little bit of a stretch, but Stefan, you can help walk us through it. Mm -hmm. Um, Edmonton's former owner, was it? Owner. Peter Pocklington was sometimes known as Peter Puck. There was also an animated television figure, character, named Peter Puck that Stefan is very familiar with from his youth. I I am. As... A, a younger person. A younger person. Please familiarize me with the adventures of Peter Puck. Peter Puck. Peter Puck was uh, he was a little Puck cartoon character. 1970. I feel like I'm all caught up. Now. We're all caught up. He was uh, he was there to help explain hockey's rules to us North Americans who are not from Canada. So he was on NBC's telecasts of uh, of NHL hockey, hockey, game hockey, of the week. hockey game of the week, and I think he was also on CBC even for those uneducated Canadians. And according to Wikipedia, Peter Puck was sometimes voiced by the monkey's Mickey Dolenz. I found the character to be a little two-dimensional, though, personally. Yeah, yeah. You needed more depth. All right, Mike, what is your Peter Puck? My Peter Puck, let's go back to Uniondale. First of all, I want to give everyone an update on Sparky. The last time we spoke about the Islanders, we mentioned their mascot, the repurposed dragon from the Arena Football League. Sparky exists. Sparky is pretty prominent. Now, you wouldn't know it from the website where if you Google Sparky the Dragon, a pretty big, uh, prominent hit is this thing, Sparky's Message. Hey, kids, your favorite Islanders mascot, Sparky, has his very own website. That's right. Sparky has gone global because, you know, World Wide Web. And here's your chance to check out what he's up to. Sparky the Dragon's website is filled with all sorts of puzzles, games, and stories that you can only find at Sparky's. And they give the website, www.sparkythedragon.com, blah, 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 blah. The website, he loves receiving email. Check out www.sparkythedragon.com to see what else. Hey, we hope you enjoy the site. And then at the end, sparkythedragon.com. I click on it, redirects you to the Islanders homepage. There is no Sparky the Dragon website. But there is, between I think the second and third period, a race between two different Sparkies, Sparkies the Dragons. Um, so I guess at Yankee Stadium, they have the race between the trains and some uh, major league ballparks. They do the presidents on the field, and they do bratwursts and wieners on the field in Milwaukee. But most in-arena races are purposing some mascot or some something that reminds the community of the game. And so in this one, it's the white shirted Sparky the Dragon against the blue shirted Sparky the Dragon. And the white shirted Sparky the Dragon is said to represent all the odd number sections and the blue shirted all the even number sections. The announcer asserts that our microphones can pick up the difference. So cheer <laughs> loudly for your section. I, I say that this is nonsense. And I say that the uh, pre-programmed cartoon only comes in one of four varieties. And in my In my game, the white Sparky the Dragon edged the blue Sparky the Dragon. I will say this. Sparky the Dragon's tail is a hockey stick, and I think more mascots should have a hockey stick tail. Why don't they? Now, the other thing I want to talk about the Islanders is the chant. Do you know the Islanders chant, Josh? I definitely don't. Do you know it, Stefan? Let's go, Islanders. That's right. Now, that's a weird chant. It was pointed out to me, though I never thought it was weird because I grew up with it, in that every other Let's Go chant is a one-syllable word. And even the hockey teams or other teams with three-syllable names like Predators or Capitals shorten it to Preds or Caps. Let's Go Caps. You've heard that one, right? That echoes all the way from Landover, doesn't it? Let's Go Caps. But with the Islanders, it echoes, it echoes so loudly that uh, uh, it echoes from Landover, even though they haven't played there in years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Decades. yeah, yeah. And it goes all the way from Landover, reverberates down there in Chinatown at whatever uh, cell phone arena the thing is named after, through Dale Hunter's uh, spleen, and you could hear it. 
Uh, let's go Islanders. Should be a weird chant, but since I grew up with it and since everyone is trained on the organ version, it's not a weird chant. I will say this. The organ... Organ has a really nice. There's a differentiation in the Islanders. It's Islander, let's go, Islanders. So it's a few different notes. But when the crowd takes, and you can't really blame the crowd for this, they're being asked to chant the three syllable name anyway. It's let's go, Islanders. And it's all the same note. Also, the crowd drops the R. So all through the crowd, they were asking, let's go Islanders, let's go Islanders. So it's three syllables, but one less letter. And as we know from our Stanley Cop, sometimes the S is even ignored in Islanders. Stefan, what is your Peter Puck? Earlier this month, Josh, North Korea allowed foreigners to run in a marathon and a couple of shorter races as part of celebrations commemorating the birth of the eternal president, Kim Il-sung who took blood transfusions from young people because he thought it would help him live to be 100. Didn't work. He died at 84, but not before spawning a whack job son who spawned another whack job son. About 650 runners from 30 countries participated in the road races. One of them was Jerry Longman of the New York Times, who wrote a piece describing the obvious bizarreness, your predictable stadium packed with people wearing Mao suits and military dress no doubt under orders, but also a promotional video featuring an all-accordion boy band doing a cover of Norwegian synth-pop music. I was unable to locate the video. Uh, The runners ran a loop through the city, enjoyed small, possibly meaningful exchanges with locals, and talked about sports, giving the repressive state a small opening to the world. As Longman also wrote, the invitation to the foreigners also likely had something to do with the fact that North Korea is desperate for hard currency and its latest dictator, the NBA-obsessed Kim Jong-un, who brought Dennis Rodman to the country last year, you might remember, has mandated an increase in tourism and also that the country wants to use sports to try to alter its image as a human rights abusing prison camp operating nuclear war mongering totalitarian state. It isn't the first time North Korea has gone the sports route toward these goals. 20 years ago this month, Pyongyang hosted International Sports and Cultural Festival for Peace. Muhammad Ali was roped somehow into attending. The big event was Collision in Korea, a professional wrestling card organized by Japanese wrestler, politician, and one-time Ali boxing opponent, Antonio Inoki, that later was produced by World Championship Wrestling and shown as a record-setting pay-per-view in the United States. According to reports... Some 340,000 people attended the eight matches over two days, which culminated in a throwdown between Rick Flair, Antonio Inoki, two of the greatest international superstars in a worldwide wrestling extravaganza. For the first time ever on pay-per-view, it's a spectacular one-time global event. Collision in Korea. Did Bob Christensen write that uh, theme song, Stephen? <laughs> we need to ask him. <laughs> the first match featured Too Cold Scorpio and Chris Benoit, who in 2007 would kill his wife, son, and self. The footage is just bizarre. Uh, Too Cold Scorpio wearing stars and stripes enters breakdancing and preening and clapping overhead to pump up the crowd. The crowd doesn't respond at all. The WCW announcers make strained pronouncements about pro wrestling and diplomacy and the importance of this unique event in opening up the closed society. You hear North Koreans chanting, Anoki, Anoki, Anoki. I mean... Talk about a cultural dichotomy. This is something that uh, is very unique. Well, it just goes to show you that the, the state that the Mr. Inoki has been for uh, trying to help North Korean uh, uh, come back to the fold of the um, family of nation. And I think I think you got to go beyond wrestling. Inoki's apparently popular in North Korea because his wrestling mentor was North Korean-born Ricky Dozan. Since 1974, Inoki has been to the North some 30 times, often against the wishes of the Japanese government. In Collision in Korea back in 1995, Flair controls the match from the outset, nearly pins Inoki several times. 
They climb onto the corner stanchions. They fight outside the ring a bunch. Inoki shockingly comes back and wins. Despite these scripted ebbs and flows, the North Korean crowd seems mostly perplexed throughout. I'm going to play one more clip, which I love because the WCW announcers make some wonderful excuses for Ric Flair, nature boy Ric Flair, jet lag among them, but also for the music. So listen carefully to the music here. But when you look at the reality of the situation, Mike, you're looking at a guy who, number one, had come off uh, a layoff from October to the end of April. That certainly had to be a factor. You also had to take into consideration the jet lag. So, Sounds you know, like excuses. No, it's not excuses. It's a fact. Flair afterward described the trip as weird and intimidating in his 2004 autobiography, To Be the Man. Flair said that he and Ali were made to stay three days after the matches and, quote, dragged from place to place to meet with different communist officials, end quote. At one function, Flair wrote, North Korean officials droned on about their moral superiority and how they could take out Japan and the U.S. at any time. Quote, suddenly Ali piped up, clear as a bell, no wonder we hate these motherfuckers, end quote. Antonio Inoki, now 73, organized another pro wrestling event in North Korea last year. That one included Bob the Beast Sap, John Strongman Anderson, Fuji's rapper Praz was there, apparently. Inoki did not wrestle. North Korea remains an isolated totalitarian state. As Ric Flair always said, to be the man, you have to lose to a Japanese man in North Korea. He did indeed, Josh. He did indeed. Josh, what's your Peter Puck? The University of Florida women's gymnastics team won its third consecutive national championship over the weekend with Alex McMurtry scoring a clutch 9.95 on the uneven bars to clinch the title for the Gators. Florida edged out Utah by 0.050 points to deny the Utes their 11th national title. Sounds like it was pretty close. <laughs> I don't know if all those digits are significant, but uh, it was close. The Utah women's team is actually known as the Red Rocks. According to a story in the Utah Daily Chronicle, the nickname comes from a 1993 marketing campaign in which the team was, quote, greased up and flexing. (laughs) As John Branch noted in the New York Times this February, the Red Rocks are an attendance juggernaut leading the nation in that category every season since 2005. At the meet that Branch attended, the crowd numbered 15,202, compared to attendance of 788 for the Utah women's basketball team the next night. This year, the average attendance for Utah women's gymnastics was 14,858. That's higher than the men's basketball attendance at such uh, well-known programs as Michigan State, Arizona, Maryland, and Florida. The official NCAA stats for men's basketball attendance stop at number 100. In 2014, that was Wyoming, average of 51-51 per game. Same thing in college baseball. The report put out by the National College Baseball Writers Association only lists schools with a minimum attendance of 1,200 fans. But that is not the case with gymnastics. The website Troster.com, put together by technologist, cyclist, gymnast, soccer fan, photographer, scuba diver, son lover, husband, and father, Steve Troster, lists gymnastic attendance from the top to the bottom. And the bottom this year, an average home meet attendance, way down at number 80, at least according to the list on Troster.com, is Gustavus Adolphus with 63.25 fans per meet. Those 63.25 fans got to enjoy the performances of sophomore Alex Kopp of Wayzata, Minnesota, who finished 12th in the all-around in the Division Three Gymnastics Championships a few weeks ago. Way to go, Alex. But attendance championships, Stefan, are not won in a single season. The long-term champ in low women's gymnastics attendance, again, according to the attendance figures on uh, Troster.com, is Ursinus College, which finished 76th out of 80 this season with 225 fans per meet, dead last with 66.67 fans per meet in 2014, and last again with 81.33 in 2013. Although four schools that season are listed with an average attendance of zero, including the Penn Quakers. Stefan, you didn't even go really? to one meet I'm embarrassed. in 2013. I didn't. But I come here not to bury Ursinus College are you Women's sure Gymnastics. sure the Ivy League releases <laughs> gymnastics attendance figures? Because I'm betting they don't for, for, for good reason. I come here not to bury Ursinus College Women's Gymnastics, but to praise it. Notable alumni of Ursinus, 
which is in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, include J.D. Salinger and Mississippi State football coach Dan Mullen, but not in that order. Definitely not in that order. It's a Division three school, which means no athletic scholarships. It's also the only school in the Centennial Conference, which also includes Swarthmore, Johns Hopkins, and Haverford, among others, to even have a women's gymnastics team. And yet, the Ursinus Grizzly Bears, they had a fantastic season, finishing second in the nation at the D3 championships. Scoring Grizzly, that. Wait, Grizzly Bears? Are there Grizzly Bears in suburban New York? Where is that? Where's Ursinus? Pennsylvania? It's New in York? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Are there Grizzly Bears there? They have the comportment of the Grizzly Bear, if not uh, the actual Grizzly Bear in attendance at their low, low attended. Maybe a Grizzly meets. Bear came to a, met, to a meet and scared away the fans. <laughs> I think I think we've got our uh, our answer. Second in the nation at the D3 championships, highest total in D3 history at a meet uh, earlier in the year. Ursinus also earned eight first or second team All-American honors in various events. Five gymnasts were named academic All-Americans. And assistant coach Emily Repko was the NGCA East assistant coach of the year. So congratulations to Riley Acton, Kristen Eschel, Monique Brooks, Heather Brubaker, Jillian Casarella, Lauren Chavis, Sydney Eckert, Jamie Hamill, Alyssa Hirschman, Adelaide Hurlbert, Kelsey Jewell, Savannah Kaplan, Tiana Lettieri, Karina Marks, Kelly McLaughlin, Catherine Norris, Amanda Palladino, Alexandra Perrier, Kaylin Ross, Vanessa Scalora, Christina Steffenhagen, Kelsey Stewart, and Brittany Zickert on a great season. And next year... May all your crowds be Utah women's gymnastics sized, not Utah women's basketball sized. We love your feedback, what we talked about today. If you're a member of the Ursinus women's gymnastics team. Or the Penn Quakers women's <laughs> gymnastics team. Just because no one's going to their matches doesn't mean that they don't deserve a shout out too. Hey, you're free to spend your afterball time on whatever you want to spend it on, buddy. <laughs> You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thanks to Sam Masling for his research help this week. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.